the Sustainable Voice, bringing you big successes from small places worldwide. Hey, everybody. This is Ashish Sengrachka. My family started a travel company 45, 46 years ago, uh, probably more than that, actually. And, you know, our focus has always been on sustainable tourism. It's a passion I've always had since the beginning. Uh, I mean, I was the entertainment when I was four years old, when people would come to our home. And I've always felt that there's a way to give back to the world through travel. So one of our one of our real dreams, one of our passions has been to launch a podcast like the one you're listening to right now. And we want to be able to showcase areas of the world that you probably wouldn't know about and show you how they started, where you belong, and where they're heading. So each episode, we're going to showcase one of these areas, most cases from one of my recent travels, places that are so far off the beaten track, you'll never find them on a map. So one such place that we're going to feature for our very first episode is a place called Iescas. Iescas is a private reserve up in the very northern part of Peru. It's about 900 miles off the coast of the Galapagos Islands in Ecuador. And, you know, what's really cool is that most people don't know that some of the wildlife from the sea lions to the birds actually migrate to this part of Peru. In fact, most Peruvians don't even know about it. You know, the 75,000 hectares here and only one hotel with four rooms. The hotel is more like a private house, but it sits on the beach. If you're into surfing, oh, this is the place. Uh, the guy who runs it, he's he's just amazing. Uh, he's a three-time world champion kite surfer. And while the place isn't trying to be the luxurious hotel of the world or like the top property of the world, what's really cool about it is the chef, the who's a local lady there, she just makes everything. I mean, you know, she was catering to my vegetarian cuisine, my vegetarian diet, and she was catering to it with no effort. Uh, I ate probably just as well there as I did uh, back home. So, you know, Iescas, what's really cool about it is the fact that it's not a national park. It, it's about to become a national park. So you get to see a part of a country, uh, you know, and see what it looked like before it becomes uh, a national park and enters the grand stage. So this is a completely private reserve. It's a protected area. And this place has been overrun by local fishermen. And, and that's how it started off, was the fact that it was a reserve. But before it was a private reserve, it was overrun by local fishermen. They wouldn't care about any of the environment. They would just go out, go fishing their normal way. And then once it was declared a private reserve, it was to be able to get their attention. It was to be able to bring them to the table. That was about 10 years ago. And can you imagine, this place is 10 years old, and I would say I can count on one hand how many people in Peru have actually been here. I can count on one hand how many people in North America have been here. And luckily, I'm one of them. You know, what's really a big challenge in places like Peru uh, is the fight against urbanization, right? The, the, the fight against the protection of indigenous land, the fight, again, you know, to, to protect structure, to, to, to protect, uh, you know, reserves like this, to protect the wildlife and the natural habitat and the ecosystem. So when, when Iescas was declared a private reserve, again, 10 years ago, it was designed to protect the fragile ecosystem. More than that, though, it was designed to actually bring the fishermen to the table. Now, if you guys have seen those videos of just those, you know, these trucks riding on the beach, 
these trucks that you know you drive along the beach with water spraying everywhere. And those of you old enough to remember Baywatch, yeah, you know the Baywatch truck going across the Santa Monica Beach and 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 everything there. So imagine that there's no roads to get here. You got to use a four wheel drive to get in. Um, in fact, when I was there, we were actually plotting out the best way to get in, and it involved breaking an axle on a truck. Uh, but don't tell the people that I told you that. Uh, but it involved breaking an axle to get in, which luckily nobody else has to do. Uh, and being able to take you into the right place on a four-wheel drive, getting you into a location. There's no roads here, no bars here, no restaurants here, nothing. That's the beauty of a private reserve. And again, 75,000 hectares. You don't need to pay an entrance fee to get in here, although we do pay one as a donation, right, to protect the reserve. And that's the best part of this experience is you get to get to a place and to be in a location where nothing is around you. It is just you and nature. And it's in the most natural setting. No tour buses here, no souvenir shops here, nothing. It is what we would call completely untouched virgin area. It is completely pristine. This is probably how Machu Picchu would have looked when it was first found before it was declared a national park. You know, that's that's the key thing. Uh, so when we got here, the fishermen were really, again, overrunning the place. And Baiesca is becoming a private reserve. While it doesn't completely fix the issue, it actually brings them to the table to be able to figure out where and how they can moor their boats, where and how they can go fishing responsibly, where and how they can still not damage the ecosystem, where they dump their bait, where they dump their waste, uh, and, and all sorts of, of elements of sustainability that's there. So, you know, when Iescas was first found, it really wasn't a sustainable initiative. It was a place that probably was an example of what sustainability is not. But just being there a few months ago and seeing what it looked like, I was just blown away by the fact that without any kind of government funding, the fact that 75,000 hectares is, is patrolled by three wardens, by three rangers, 75,000 hectares patrolled by just three rangers. You probably need more like 300 rangers to patrol that properly, but three. And the fact that they're able to still be able to talk to the fishermen, understand what they're doing, understand why they need to be fishing, but also be able to educate them on how scientific research has to be done here, why this place needs to be a national reserve. Now, what's really amazing about what's happening up here is when I got there, they were just about to declare themselves as a national park. It was supposed to happen this year. Well, we just had presidential elections in Peru and the candidate who probably would have declared this as a national park is not the one who was elected. So now they probably have to wait a few more years. But here's the beauty of a place like Iescas. Those three same rangers, who, by the way, those three rangers are the ones who helped us when we broke that axle, which, remember, I told you, don't tell anybody I told you that. Those three rangers were also the ones who were helping us get out of the sand when our truck basically just got buried in quicksand. Uh, the, you know, anybody who's taken a truck off road knows that if you don't have the right torque in the engine and you hit the gas too soon, well, the back sinks in and then you're not going anywhere, especially on beach sand. Well, that's what happened to us. They don't show you that in those, uh, commercials where you see those four by fours, you know, going through sand and kicking up sand and water everywhere. They never show you 
how it really happens. If anybody wants to know how to get a four-wheel drive stuck, just ask me. I'll tell you. I did it multiple times. So three rangers have to come and help tow us out. Three rangers have to help show us the reserve. Three rangers have to patrol 75,000 hectares. Three rangers have to be able to find a balance and maintain a balance between fishermen and scientists. Now let's talk about some of the wildlife that's here. Anybody who's been to the Galapagos knows the wildlife in that, in, that, in that part of the world is just stunning. So imagine my amazement. I get off this cliff and look down. There's thousands of sea lions just sitting here, looking up at you, uh, going about their normal dance. It's just, just amazing, you know, whether it's mating, whether it's going hunting, whether it's just doing what we all do, lounging on the beach and doing nothing, uh, which that sounds really good these days. Then you also got these birds called blue-footed boobies. You got red frigates. You even got Galapagos penguins that fly in here. Could you imagine, you know, we, we talk about winter homes and summer homes. Imagine having to fly and having to fly three to 900 miles every time you want to go somewhere else just for a change of scenery. I mean, that's, that's the cool thing. And, and, and the fact that these guys with no government funding still make this place work and still make it a private reserve. It's still not protected, but it keeps a lot of the urbanization out. Now, the next step when it becomes a national park is to continue the balance with the locals, the fishermen and the local residents. Only now there is government funding backing the conservation and the equilibrium. This is so travelers and people who are meant to be there see it for what this really is meant to be about. You know, what's also really cool about this, and, 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 you know, this is one where those of you listening to this and thinking about this, no matter where you are, whether you're in your car, whether you are at your desk, whether you're at work, uh, and you're listening to this, imagine for a second your own private beach house and having a backyard that big and having this balance just struck between not animals, but between people. The animals take priority. Imagine going and seeing these birds and sea lions in the hundreds, seeing crabs in the hundreds, seeing everything that you see here just built from scratch. So that beach house I was telling you about, solar powered completely, not, not a generator in sight, solar powered completely. And to be able to, to you know, live a pretty simplistic life in there. You don't have, a, you know, full-blowing ACs or a massage, but you've actually got a really simple home stay. And you feel like you're at home. Now imagine when this place gets declared a national park. Now the tour buses will show up. That's the part I'm kind of worried about. You know, is how do you, how do you protect this? You know, the, the, the balance that, that ESCAS has struck right now, and that's what sustainability is, right? Is a balance. It's a balance between fishermen, a balance between nature, a balance between tourism, a balance between so many different things. But it needs a voice. It needs a voice that, that, that's able to show that balance, to be able to show what, what that feels like. When you actually get into the Ieskis area, let me walk you through what it's like just going in. First of all, there's no airport here. There's not even, not even a city. The closest town is three hours away. So if you forget something in that town, you're going to live without it. Now, I'm sure there are ways to get it to you, but just think about that. And the town you have to fly into, Chiclayo, it's 
very few roads here. Everything's dirt roads as well. And then you're driving out here, and, and I swear, you're driving on these dirt roads that are just have potholes everywhere, but it's still so much fun when you realize that that one lane uh, dirt road is part of the Pan American Highway. You know, those of you who go down to Argentina, go up to Mexico, go up to other parts of Latin America, this road is six lanes. It's three lanes going in each way, and it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted highway. You get to this part of Peru, it's a dirt road that barely fits one car going one way, and this is supposed to be the, the Pan American Highway. But that's how remote you are. You know, it's so funny. I started telling everybody here, I'm heading to a Yescas, and normally you'd hear back, oh, cool. What I heard back is, wait, where? Yescas. Where, where, where is that? Oh, near Chiclayo. Where's that? Uh, Northern Peru. Northern Peru. Wow. And, and you know, it, it's it's so amazing because when you're up here, it's not about history and the Incas and that has nothing to do with it. You know, you pull up any ad on Peru or any commercial or website or any kind of, any kind of, of, of multimedia uh, uh, presentation or video on Peru and all you see is, is Incan ruins, not one in sight. But when you drive out here, you drive through places, you drive through an alkaline, alkaline lake, you drive through a calcified desert. I mean, you think you're in Chile. And then you get out to this place and you see in the middle of this bush, this brick structure that has no earthly business being there. And you think, okay, this must be the remnants of somebody's house, the remnants of maybe a, uh, a, a factory or something. And then you smell sulfur. You start smelling a bit of sulfur and go, what is that smell? Then you start doing more research. And well, the coolest thing I found out, this wasn't a factory of private sorts. This was a sulfur factory that the Spanish and the French started using during the early world wars to make, to make bombs for the world wars. They were shipped out from here. Who knew? Who knew that this remote part of Peru that I was driving through with calcified lakes and deserts and wildlife and, and, and surfing and private reserves and beach and coastal town was at one point back in the early 1900s, a sulfur factory that made bombs for one of the two world wars. Who knew? It's not in a map. It's definitely not in any history book. That's for sure. Cause I'm a history buff. I used to read this stuff in and out. I I don't remember reading ever about a factory that made, that made bombs back in, back in, uh, in those books. That's the beauty of it. So just think about the fact that you're driving through here. You're seeing things that you don't expect. Not to tell you, you know, 48 years I've, uh, I've known this. And, and over my time, I'm, I'm 43 years old now. And driving over and traveling over the 40 years I've been doing this, I've never seen anything like this. You know, and you get out to this, the, to Yescas, to this reserve. First, you enter in and... You know, of course, I got stuck here going in. So the quicksand is telling you about you get towed out uh, by an ATV. And then you see this sign of Iescas, and it's Zona Privada. So private reserve, okay? You know you're entering somewhere. No street signs, no arrows, just dirt trails. And that's when I broke out my inner David Hasselhoff and drove the truck onto the beach, drove through the sand, through the water coming in, 
the only thing missing was was me in swimming trunks or somebody better looking than me in swimming trunks running behind the truck with a with a lifeboard uh, with a, with a, one of those lifeboard orange thingamajigs. But just think about the fact that you don't even know where you're going. Like, oh, I'll figure it out. At one point, I remember we were driving out to this one area to see the penguins. We had to stop and walk because we had to stop and actually use our powers of deduction to say, well, if the tide comes in because the moon's positioned here, we're not going to be able to get back because we'll get we'll be able to drive through here. But if the tide comes in, our truck's going to get floated and, and going to get taken out to sea, and we're going to be walking back the whole way. So if my astronomy professor from college is listening, thank you. Um, I was listening, and you just saved me a five-mile hike back to my hotel because I was able to remember that tides are affected by gravitational pulls. And because I remembered that one instance, I was able to drive to where I needed to, walk a mile instead of five miles, and then be able to drive home on the beach again, which was quite fun, and be able to, to, to make it one whole experience. Can't fault that. It's, you know, quite liberating, if I may say so myself. I've done everything from climbing Kilimanjaro to swimming with piranha to great white sharks and you name it. It's quite liberating to be in a place where you really come back and not feel, but actually know that among your friend circle and among most people you know, you're going to be the first ones there. You're, you're the first one there because you don't, you don't go in there and leave and go, wow. You come out there, leave and just go, I don't have any words. But see, that's what gives it the voice. That's what gives it this amazing presence. The fact that, that you can see that even without the backing of the government, even without the designation of a national park, the initiatives to make Ieska sustainable, to find this balance with the fishermen, they're there. It's occurring organically. And see, that's the one of the things I learned early on about sustainable tourism. One of the things I still love about sustainable tourism, and I'll always love about it, is that the best cases are the ones that are organic, the ones that are brought about naturally. It's not because of a 10-point plan. It's not because of a 50-point you know, plan from a government somewhere. It's not because somebody has to do it. It's because three rangers and the fishermen that are there figured out that if they want to still be able to fish here, if they want to still be able to protect the wildlife here, if they want to protect the ecosystem here, they're going to have to work together. Nobody told them to do it. Nobody forced them to do it. They just did it. What better example of sustainable tourism than that? Now, is it perfect? Of course not. It's in the earliest stage. Do the fishermen still leave waste? Of course. Do the fishermen still leave some of their damaged boats on the shore? Of course. Do they still leave garbage if, they, if their boat gets damaged or sinks and washes ashore? Do they still leave their supplies and whatever was on the boat floating ashore, leave it there? Of course. The issues are still there. But if this can start out as sustainable organically, imagine what could happen here if an organized effort comes in behind. That's where you come in. That's where I come in. That's where we all come in. Simply visiting here. That's the key. Seeing what that balance is like, and more importantly, being part of that balance. I can't wait for a yes guess 
to be declared a national park because unlike the fears that I would have had from other places, I don't have as much of a fear here just because those same three rangers aren't going to go anywhere. They're the ones who want the national park status because they want the extra funding. They want to be able to make something happen. They want to be able to be able to use those resources the right way. Could you imagine even condors here and being able to find a sanctuary that's funded to be able to protect them? Now let's talk about that for a second. Anybody here know how a condor is really lured in if you want to see a condor? Of course, they're very high up. They are vultures and they're very high up in the mountains. Well, the way they get lured in into communities to research is somebody will kill a donkey, leave it out in the middle of the town and condors being condors will come in to, to, to feast. And once they're feed, once they're there, that's when the research is done. That's when sometimes they are put into captivity to study more. Not so much the case in the Eskas. The research is done in the field. The, the, the condors are flying freely. Whatever they are killing, whether it's sea lions, whether it's donkeys, whether it's anything else, it's organic. The reason I know that is because with three rangers, there's not enough people that actually can go around killing donkeys and burying them in the sand or leaving them on the ground for vultures to come in. It just isn't enough manpower. And that's Again, if I had a worry about this being a national park, that's probably one, which is if it becomes a national park, how do you maintain that organic trust? Now, after meeting these three rangers, I have full faith that these guys will still do it the right way. I mean, heck, if they know how to pull me out of the sand and, and, and after I got this trucks just completely sunk, if they know that what we had done with this axle, just think about this. They have national pride. They have a, a, a genuine national pride, a natural pride of their reserve. Ieskes being a private reserve, nobody actually lives in one clustered area. People that grew up here, they live in surrounding communities. They commute three, four hours, sometimes longer to get here. They're engaged. So for them, for the, lo for the locals that are here, Seeing a, a, a deliberate effort to give back, seeing a concerted effort through tourism or other means to give back is really what brings them to care about Ieskas more and what actually is one of the key cogs in keeping this balance. There's so much that comes out of this when every party in Ieskas is living in balance and harmony. Imagine the fight against urbanization. Imagine, take that around the world whether it's jaguars losing their habitat in Central America and South America, whether it's poachers in Africa. What if sustainability wasn't serendipitous? What if it didn't happen because of something manufacturing it to happen? What if it happened organically because of a genuine desire? Now that does happen in other places. You see anti-poaching efforts in Africa that are occurring where communities are involved. You see it occurring in places in Latin America where there's a genuine care, but not like this, not like Ieskas. This place just has a story to, that just needs to be told. It needs to be told, but it's such a delicate balance that how do you, how do you, how do you say it? How do you tell this story if you don't have the words? How do you tell the story if you don't know the words to use 
to describe what you've just seen. Is it the sea lions you saw? Yeah, but not just that. Is it the blue-footed boobies and penguins you saw from the Galapagos? Yeah, but it's not just that. Is it the surfing activities? Yeah, but it's not just that. Is it the food? Yeah, but it's not just that. I can't quite, quite put my finger on what one thing draws me to Ieskas because it isn't just one thing. It's all of them put together, working in concert, organically, naturally, not because they were told to, because they figured out how to. Well, that was fun. I actually, I'm proud of myself. We got our first podcast down. I hope it made your drive easier, your train ride easier, or even your time at work easier. Uh, and remember, that truck, the axle, that's our little secret. Don't say anything about it. So, you know, as you can tell, I have a real passion for this. I love sustainable tourism. I love talking about it. I love sharing my experiences from it from around the world. I can't wait for you to listen to our next one on the Mbulia Conservancy in Kenya. This, well, this one hits a bit close to home. I was born in Kenya. I was just at this place. And if anybody here knows about those two man-eating lions of Savo National Park, you're going to want to hear this next podcast. Again, a great example of sustainable tourism. And it's probably one level more progressed from where Yeskes is today in terms of, you know, the, the actual organization behind the sustainable efforts, but we'll get into it. So I can't wait for you to join us there. Thank you for listening to The Sustainable Voice. If you have a success story of your own, please reach out and share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.